Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at this. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, Beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who had spoken before, before have foretold these things. And you are heirs of prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Thank you very much, Anushka. If you've got your Bibles, please do keep them open. Um, let me add my welcome as well to that of Noah's earlier. My name's Jez. I'm one of the leaders here at the church. And um, it's my privilege and blessing to speak to you from the Bible this morning. Now, <clears throat> in my, I think it was my first year of university, actually, I had the opportunity to go to New York City. Um, and this was incredibly exciting for me. It's the first time I'd ever been to the United States. It was the first time, actually, that I'd ever been on a plane so previously, when I was a child, um, my family would kind of go to various places in the UK. We might go to Europe, um, but we'd drive and get the ferry. I'd, I'd never flown before. So I was going to New York. I was flying. It was all very, very exciting. And I remember just the, the, having landed in the United States, that, that journey towards Manhattan, where we were staying. So you fly into JFK, and like any city airport, um, it's quite a way away from the city. So we flew in. 
We got on our coach. Um, we drove towards the city. And as we approached New York, I could pick up some of the skyline. I could see a row of tower blocks. And I thought, wow, this is, this is it. But it wasn't, it wasn't fully it. I couldn't really take in the city until something happened um, a day or two later, which was I went up the Empire State Building. Now, I remember there was quite a long queue. I remember there were, uh, it was quite a way to get up to the top through an ascent and various lifts and things. But then when I got to the top and I looked out at this view, it took my breath away. And I was struck by how vast the city was. It was huge, absolutely massive. And um, I remember just, it just seemed to sprawl for miles and miles. And because of the, the block system, it kind of looked to me a bit like a giant computer motherboard, if that makes sense to any of you. Um, but I was just so struck by its size. I was like, it's so big. There's so much here to see. You know, I could spend, I, I was here to come to New York, but I could, there's so much here, I'll never be able to see it all. I could be here for months, and I'd never be able to explore every aspect of it. It was amazing, and slightly overwhelming and intimidating. But the sight of those tower blocks, when, I first, when we were first driving in, was one thing, but it was another thing to see the view of the whole city from the top of the Empire State Building. My perspective simply shifted, and there was far more to this city, I realized then, than I'd first thought. Now, if you could sum up this account in the book of Acts, this healing of a lame man and Peter's sermon, I think the message is similar. There is more to Christianity, there's more to Jesus than you might have first thought. And whether we are Christians or whether we are not Christians, our perspective of Jesus may be smaller than it should be or could be. You know, if you're not a Christian, you may have come to church a few times. You may have a sense that you've got an idea of what this whole Jesus thing is about. You may have heard it before. And if you're a Christian, you've probably definitely heard it before. And you may feel like you've got a decent grasp of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But here in this passage in Acts 3, it says that it's possible that when it comes to Jesus, you may have only just begun to see the beginning of the skyline. And what you need is a thousand-foot view over the whole city, a bigger view to take him in. Now, we all need this bigger view of Jesus for at least a couple of reasons. Firstly, to help sustain us through the ups and downs of life. But secondly, we need a bigger view of Jesus to ensure that we have responded to him correctly. You may find that after seeing this empire state perspective, the way you treat Jesus, the way you respond to Jesus, may need readdressing. So let's find out together. So a few things I want to see um, about this passage and what it teaches us. Um, the first is this. It tells us something about what Jesus does. He gives us more than we ask for. He gives us more than we ask for. So just a bit of a recap about the book of Acts. It is the story of the spread and growth of Christianity after Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension. It tells us how the Jesus movement went global as the good news about the Messiah is proclaimed and thousands start to join the church from all over the world. Now, we're still early in the story here. The church hasn't actually gone beyond the city of Jerusalem just yet. 
But Jesus' disciples, also called the apostles, are spreading the news about who he is. And extraordinary things are happening. There are miraculous signs. Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit. We've seen in previous chapters there was this miraculous event where um, people could start speaking and understanding languages that previously they couldn't. And we saw that the church was comprised, the first New Testament church. And it was marked by a biblical spirituality, we saw last week. A culture that was attractive, a togetherness culture. And there was also this um, sense of awe and joy within the group that fueled the way they behaved towards each other. And it kind of started this church off the back of uh, Peter's sermon, um, his preaching. And today in this passage we see another miracle and another sermon. So look down with me. So at the beginning of the, the passage we see that Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. Peter and John, two of the apostles, two of Jesus' lead disciples. And we're told, verse 2, that there's a man who is lame, who is sat at one of the temple gates. And here's a man lame from birth. It's a congenital issue. Never in his life has this man ever stood up properly, ever walked, let alone ever gone for a jog. And on top of that... Because of the social situation at the time, never had this man entered the temple. Someone with his condition was barred entry. The temple was supposed to be associated with holiness. And so for this man, he couldn't meet that criteria. So every day he was taken to the temple, presumably by family or friends. He was brought to the the threshold of a building that he could never enter. He couldn't go in. He saw it only from the outside, from this gate. Okay, imagine being a Man City fan at the Emirates, or a Man United fan at Old Trafford, and having been there every day, but never getting past the turnstiles. You could hear the, the, the match going on inside, but you couldn't see anything, you couldn't experience it. You were always left on the outside. This was this man's every day. He came to beg from the people to get money. Now, Peter and John come past him. They deliberately get his attention. Did you notice that? Peter's like, look at us. The man asks them for money. And verse 6, Peter says, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Peter takes this man by the hand. He lifts him up, helps him up. And miraculously, this man gains strength in his legs. Verse 8, he even jumps to his feet. He walks around. For the first time in his life, he enters the temple and he's jumping and he's um, praising God. I mean, imagine what that must have been like for him. Utter transformation. Healed and restored to the religious life of the community. Verse 9, people who know him, they've seen him every day um, or regularly when they've come into the temple, they see him jumping about in the temple. They're amazed. It causes quite a stir. And so verse 11, it draws a crowd of people around where Peter is. And Peter, ever the opportunist, sees a chance to give a sermon. So what does he say? Well, look at verse 12. He says, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Down to verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. 
It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Peter's basically saying, look, don't give us the credit for healing this guy, as if, like, we're magic. It is Jesus who has healed this man. Jesus was the one with power. Peter was merely an instrument of that power. And so Jesus had transformed this man's life. He'd started the day hoping for little more than for some financial support. But by the end, he had received far more than that. Physical healing, social healing, spiritual healing. He was able to participate in the community life of the temple. And we see he joined the church. So Jesus had given him far more than he had asked for. You know, Jesus does the same for us. You know, we all have ideas about what God should give us, don't we? We have our dreams that we lay before him in our prayers. We're aware of the sins and struggles that we have that we hope that he will help us with. Unhealthy behaviors that we want to defeat and change. And it's not wrong a lot of the time to ask for these things. They're good things to ask for. But sometimes we find that we don't always get what we ask for. Some of us are actually on paths through life that we would have never chosen for ourselves. Now, what if the reason for that, or at least one reason for that, is that Jesus is up to something bigger in our lives? The writer um, C.S. Lewis put it like this. Imagine yourself a living house, and you ask God to make some repairs. And so at first, he's getting the drains right, he's stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. He is building a palace. Do you see what he's saying? You know, we pray for all sorts of things. We don't receive everything we ask for. And we wonder, you know, does God care? Is he even powerful enough to help? But when we don't get what we ask for, it's not that God isn't at work. Actually, he's wanting to give us something greater, greater than we would ask for ourselves. God's ultimate aim is to make us beautiful. To make us beautiful like his son, Jesus. And in order for that to happen, it means that we don't get everything we ask for. For example, think about hardships. The Lord is not going to just fix everything hard in our lives sometimes, at least not on the time scale that we would like. Often because it is through those hardships that he will make us who he wants us to be. It is through hardships that we grow in patience Slowly, it's through hardships that we learn to trust in Jesus more and love him. Although sometimes we can't always see that until further down the road. It is through hardships that we are better placed to help others because of the hard experiences we've faced. Some of the godliest, most loving people in this church are people who have suffered greatly. But they are beautiful. God has given them more than they asked for. His vision for us is greater than our own. And so this is what Jesus does. He gives us more than we ask for. 
He wants to do something deep in us. Deeper simply than a, a change of a set of circumstances. He gives us more. So that's something about what Jesus does. Secondly, let's just see something about who Jesus is. He's bigger than we think he is. He's bigger than we think he is. So Peter heals this lame man through Jesus' power. And he sees this then as a chance to tell the crowd that is drawing about who this Jesus is. And this is a rich portrait, if you look at this sermon, full of Old Testament imagery. It's a bit of a masterclass, really, in interpreting the Old Testament. He's speaking to Jewish people in the temple. And what he does is he shows these Jewish people that all of their hopes, all of their anticipations, all the prophecies find their center point in Jesus Christ himself. Just look at the number of titles that Peter uses to describe Jesus in this passage. So verse 14, he's the holy and righteous one. He is, verse 13, the servant. This is language taken from the prophet of Isaiah, referring to a coming chosen one of God who would unite God's people and suffer in their place. He's the righteous one, he's the servant. Verse 22, he's the prophet, a prophet greater than Moses, who Moses told about, who must be listened to. Verse 24, he's the one spoken of by Samuel and all the prophets. Samuel was the biblical writer who talked about King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. And King David was promised that he would have a descendant who would rule forever. Peter is saying, this is Jesus. Peter goes even further. He goes straight to the main guy in Judaism, Abraham. Verse 25, so Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish people. He was given this incredible promise that through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. And Jesus goes, yeah, guess who's the one who gives that blessing? It's Jesus. Throughout this passage, Peter is at pains to say that Jesus is the one who all the prophets of Judaism were looking forward to. He's like, guys, listen, every, everything our ancestors hoped for in the, in, uh, through the hard times Every prophecy, every vision of a brighter future, it, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He's the center of everything that has been promised to you. He's telling these people that their entire religious system was created ultimately to point to Jesus. Now, that is a perspective shift for them. Now, if you're not Jewish, that might not have much impact on you personally. But perhaps think of it like this. Peter is basically saying that the aim of history itself is to prepare for Jesus. Our culture has various views on history and what it's all about. Some see it purely as the story of oppression, where minorities have been trodden down on by those in power. Many see history a bit more optimistically. They hope that it is a story of progress that as we develop our ideas and our science and our technologies, we can create a better world, a better world tomorrow. We've seen this through all sorts of different thinkers. Um, Martin Luther King once said that the moral arc of history bends towards justice. Even as we see injustice today, there is this hope that in the future we will head towards something better, something greater. Peter is saying history ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Before Jesus came to earth, history was all about preparing for that event. And now Jesus has come, 
History is all about preparing for his return. Look at verse 21. Heaven must receive him, that is Jesus, until the time comes to restore everything. Martin Luther King would agree with this. The moral arc of history bends towards justice because, as King knew, it bends towards Jesus. He is the one who brings justice. He is the true source of progress in our world. Peter is trying to show these people that Jesus is far bigger than they think he is. He is the center of all their hopes and anticipations. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 13, he says that God has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is strange language. You know, normally, when we talk about someone being glorified in the Bible, it is always God who is being glorified. We are to glorify God. That is, to, we are to make much of him. We're to put the spotlight on him, put him center stage so that he gets all the praise and attention and everyone will see his supremacy. But in this verse, God is doing the glorifying. Who does God shine the spotlight on? The answer is his son, Jesus. God the Father has put the spotlight on his son by raising him from the dead. And like any proud father, he wants others to see the beauty and wonder of his son. And this is a pointer to the fact that Jesus is no mere man. He is more than that. He is actually divine himself. The reason it's not blasphemous for God to put the spotlight on Jesus is because this is God the Father putting the spotlight on God the Son. Look at verse 15. What a, what a description of Jesus. He is the author of life. That is, that Jesus is the creator. Peter is saying that before he came to earth in his um, humanity, before the world began, Jesus had sat down and put pen to paper along with his Father and the Holy Spirit and wrote the story of our universe. He wrote your story and mine. And not only that, he sustained us, he is creating us through it. Life on planet Earth, life in the cosmos only continues because the author of life has written it into being and is keeping it going. That's who this Jesus is, according to Peter, the author of life. Jesus is bigger than they thought he was. Now, the crowds had got him seriously wrong, haven't they? Look at verse 13 again. Peter says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. There's a tragic irony here. These crowds that had seen Jesus' crucifixion, they had released a murderer, someone who takes life, and they had murdered the creator of life. It's hard to imagine a greater crime. And just as in Acts 2, Peter holds these crowds in the city who had been there at the time, in Jerusalem, he holds them to account for the worst of all actions, for killing the Son of God, the author of life. Now, we should be careful not to think of these people as so evil that they're in a different category to anyone else. 
Peter recognizes, verse 17, that they acted in ignorance. They didn't know who Jesus was, though he does hold them still responsible. But for Peter, this language of disowning would have had a bit of a personal significance. Disowning can also be translated deny. The people had denied Jesus. And Peter had also done his fair share of denying, hadn't he? He had denied Jesus three times after Jesus had been arrested. He'd been asked by someone, weren't you with him? Weren't you one of, these, one of his people, his disciples? He's like, no, I don't know the man. He had denied Christ. And in some ways, that makes him worse than the crowds. The crowds were ignorant as to who Jesus was. Peter knew he was the son of God. He'd said so with his own tongue and yet still denied him. You see, Peter, and by extension, we, are to see something of the crowd's guilt in ourselves. We all deny Jesus. And here's the point, really. Having a small view of Jesus is dangerous. It's dangerous. If you think about um, Jesus' reputation in our culture, it's generally quite a good one, I would say. People think of Jesus as a good teacher, But biblically speaking, it would be more of a sanitized view of Jesus, a domesticated Jesus. A Jesus with some good moral principles, ones that might get quoted on an Instagram post here and there. Jesus who stands in history amongst other notable figures at various times. But for many, ultimately, a Jesus who stays in the grave and is therefore safe. Going back to Martin Luther King, Um, it's been said that the reason many Americans respect Martin Luther King today is that he's dead. The point being that if he was alive and spoke his mind regarding the injustices that still happen in our culture, he wouldn't be as popular anymore. I don't know whether that's true, but I do know that the same is true with Jesus. We can say that he is a good teacher and we can keep him at arm's length where he's safe. But the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus, is bigger than that. He is risen from the dead, Peter said. He rules at the right hand of his father. He is the author of life itself. Even Christians... We don't grasp this all the time, do we? You know, all of us have disowned Jesus. We, we deny him all the time. We do so with our words. We do so with our actions and with our thoughts, you know, as if he never existed. I was just thinking this morning, you know, how, how prayerless I've been at points this, this week. To, to not pray is, is to deny the fact that Jesus is my sustainer. It's as if to think I can just handle life by myself. I don't need him. He does not keep me going. I keep myself going. That's what prayerlessness says. I've denied him. How many ways do we deny Jesus? So many. All of us are responsible and accountable to him. And like these crowds, we desperately need his pardon. When we see that Jesus is bigger than we thought he is, that affects our our response towards him. We, We need his pardon. Well, how should we respond finally by turning repentance and faith in this sermon the people are left with no doubt 
in terms of what is required of them. They are to turn. Look at verse 19. Peter says, repent then and turn to God. And then down at the end, verse 26, he says, when God raised his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. We are to turn. And the stakes are high. Verse 22, Jesus is described as the prophet like Moses who must be listened to. Verse 23, anyone who does not listen to, the, um, to Jesus will be completely cut off from their people. This is a picture of judgment. Our response to Jesus really matters. While the Jerusalem crowds can listen to Jesus, they can hear him through listening to Peter. Peter speaks for Jesus, and what does Peter say? He says, turn, turn. There are two aspects to this. A turning away from, that is, from what Peter calls wicked ways, and a turning to, turning to God. Let's take each one in turn, so to speak. Well, turning away from, a fancy word for this is repentance, repentance. The crowd are called to turn away from what they have done wrong by repenting. Now, why does Peter use this striking language, murdering, killing the author of life? He does this so that they will see the seriousness of what they've done. They have to understand the gravity of their actions. They have to stare them in the face. And once they do that, the hope is that then they will see what they have done and say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I did this. It's on me. I was wrong. I want to change. That is repentance. Turning away from our wrongdoing. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield um, wrote a book called Openness Unhindered. She talks about the difference between admitting sin and repenting of sin. She says that when we admit sin, we acknowledge that we did something wrong. We acknowledge that. But you can admit sin and still excuse yourself for it or not really show a desire to change. She talks about the example of saying, oh, I'm just a hot-headed Italian and I can't help it when I lose my temper with my family. So yeah, admitting the issue but not truly repenting of it, kind of making peace with it, even claiming it as part of our identity. Oh, this is just who who I am. This is just what I do. She writes that Christians who indulge the habit of only admitting sin will, over time, not end up not seeing sin as sin at all, but just life. This is just how I am. But that is not repentance. That would be like me driving down a motorway, knowing that I've taken a wrong turning, and saying to everyone in the car, my bad guys, I took a wrong turning. But then when I see the exits to come off, I just keep going. Admitting is not repenting. Repentance means truly owning what you've done is wrong and desiring to change. That's what Peter calls for the crowds. That's what he calls us to do, to repent, to turn away? Are there things you need to turn away from? Are there ways you've denied Jesus that he calls you today to make a a direction change? 
But we don't just turn away from sin as if we can just deal with it all by ourselves. We turn to God. And if turning away is called repentance, turning to God is called faith. And the lame man is actually a perfect illustration of this. So think back again to this lame man being healed. Verse 16, Peter says that he was healed by faith in the name of Jesus. So what did this man's faith look like? Well, in verse 6, if you look back, Peter says to this man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And what happened? Peter holds out his hand. The man takes it. Peter helps him up, and as he's helping him up, that's when his feet and ankles become strong. Once this man has taken Peter's hand. So he's not healed until he takes Peter's hand. Now, Peter is the one with strength. Peter is lifting him up, and Jesus is working through him to heal him. But the man has to receive Peter's hand. He receives Peter's hand and then is healed. And historically, Christians have talked about um, faith being like an open hand to receive what God gives us. And this is how forgiveness was offered to the crowds. They are to turn away from discerning Jesus, but to turn to God in faith. Forgiveness is offered to them. They just need to take Jesus' hand. Believe that what he has done has saved them, and then they can entrust in him, and they can be healed spiritually. Verse 19, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah. The sin of killing the author of life can be wiped clean. It can be gone. How? Repent and take Jesus by the hand. See, the Christian life for us from beginning to end is all about repentance and faith. That's not just how we enter the Christian life. It's how we continue. Our hearts will continue to sin against God as long as we live in this life. And so the call to us, whether we are a Christian or not a Christian, is the same. Repent and believe. Repent and have faith. Turn from your wicked ways, but turn to God. Take his hand. We have all denied him. We've treated him as small, though he is bigger than we thought he is, was. Spiritually, we are lame, to say the least, like that man. But in the gospel, Jesus Christ offers us his hand. He has died and risen again to pay for our sins. And so he calls us to renounce those sins. But by us taking his hand, he can give us spiritual strength. He can forgive us our sins no matter what we've done. And look at verse 21. Christianity is not just about our sins being forgiven, as wonderful a gift as that is, but it's hope for the future. Jesus will one day come from heaven to restore this broken world, usher in the age to come, and we will dwell with him forever. All our prayers that seem to go unanswered for the pain to end, for hardships to cease, they will be answered one day. The Lord is coming to restore the world. But in the meantime, we need to repent and believe. That's what Peter says to these people. You see, one of the things that burdens Peter in this sermon is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. 
He's, he, he's the one prophesied by all the prophets. These Jerusalemites have not recognized that Jesus is their king. Look at verse 20. Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah appointed for them. He's, he's been sent by God for them. Of all people, these crowds should take hold of Jesus' hand because God has sent Jesus particularly to bless them, to serve them. But of course, it's not just for the Jewish people. He's for all of us. He's the author of all our lives. He's the king of all of us. And he has been sent to Jew and Gentile. He's been sent to all humans. And so Jesus has been appointed, in this sense, for everyone. He's been sent for you. And he's working through history even now to bring a people to himself, including here in Manchester, perhaps even including this morning. You know, it is not an accident that you are in this room hearing this passage preached. Jesus Jesus is the author of life, remember. He has written the pages of your life, and he has written that you should be here this morning to hear this word today. He knew you would be here. He is the prophet like Moses who must be listened to. He speaks today through his preached word, and he calls us to repent and believe. He calls us to take his hand. Do that, and you will have eternal life. And so if you've never done this before, today is a good day to start. Christian friends, are there things that you need to repent of? Are there ways in which, again, you need to trust in Jesus? Let's do that. And if you're not a Christian, this is an invitation for you as well to repent and believe. Come to Jesus. He offers you his hand. The ways we've denied him can be wiped clean. Our punishment can be dealt with. And we can be promised a glorious future. Take him by the hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one who has glorified your son Jesus by raising him from the dead, by giving him the name that is above every name. And Lord, we must glorify him too. Father, we confess that in many ways Jesus is much bigger than we have thought he is. We confess that in many ways we have seen him as small. We've denied him. We've not acknowledged who who he truly is and responded in the right way. And yet, Lord, you have shown grace and mercy to us. What do we deserve for denying your son? And yet, what have you offered us? Eternal life, a place in your family, the chance to have our sins wiped clean and dwell with Jesus forever. Lord, where we need to repent, may we repent. We confess, Lord, our sins we confess that we have denied Jesus. Lord, we acknowledge that these things are wrong and that they are our own responsibility. Lord, right now, we do not accept the idea that our sins are just because that's who we are and we do not excuse them. We acknowledge them and we boldly ask for your forgiveness, Lord. We trust that in in the Lord Jesus, there is power for our sins to be forgiven.
that Jesus offers, offers us his hand. And Lord, we want to take his hand this morning. Forgive, forgive us, Lord, we pray, and give us joy and awe at who you are and who your son is. In his name we pray. Amen.